Well, if you read the midweek email Steve sent out this week, you will have noticed that beginning this week, we're going to embark on a small series over the next several months entitled, But God. Each week, we'll be highlighting different verses in the Bible that begin with, But God. I'm personally really excited about this, and this morning, I have the privilege of bringing the first sermon in this series. Now, perhaps you're asking, why is this important? Why are we talking about, or why are we taking time away from our normal exposition through books of the Bible to focus on something like this? Well, briefly, I think there are two good reasons for this. First, when we preach through a book for a year and a half, which is a good thing, by the way, it, is, it be- can become easy for us to lose our place in the overall storyline of the Bible. I think we've done a pretty good job of not only highlighting the actions of God, but very often, uh, sorry, uh, we've done a pretty good job through the Hebrew series of keeping our eyes focused on the big picture. But jumping out and covering a series like this, often after a long haul through a book, can help us place what we've just studied into the grand narrative of the Bible. This is important. We always want to be reminded of the big picture and our place in it. Secondly, and especially with this series entitled, But God, we are reminded of what the grand storyline of the Bible is all about. We are studying passage in this series which highlight God. You see, this is what the Bible is ultimately about. It's not primarily about us. It's not even primarily about redemption. Rather, the Bible is about God. Who He is, what He does, and how we are supposed to respond to Him. The the Bible is first and foremost God's glorious and perfect revelation of Himself. His very word to humanity about himself and the bearing that that has in our lives. God is the actor in the storyline of the Bible. And we are going to see that play out as we go through these passages. We are dealing with God. And notice that it is but God. That little conjunction in the title is important. We are not only highlighting the actions of God, but very often we will be highlighting them in stark contrast to everything else in the story. So-and-so did this or thought that, but God did this or that. We are not only highlighting the glorious nature of God, but we are highlighting His complete separateness from everything else. In all his creation, God stands alone as the sole actor throughout the entirety of history, very often in contrast to everything else in history. Perhaps you will pardon the pun, but we are looking at the actions of God in history, in his story. And so this morning we will be looking at the story uh, in Genesis 6 through 9, the story of the flood. And did you hear the but God as the passage was read? It comes in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered. Now this isn't the first but God in Scripture. That comes in Genesis 3-9, which says, But God called to the man and asked, Where are you? Perhaps we'll we'll preach that passage another time, and it's a good one. But this morning we'll look at the second but God in Scripture. But God remembered. The flood narrative is a long passage, and thanks to Lacey for reading it for us. 
And it's extremely important that chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered, comes right at the center of the passage. It comes at both the geographical center, right in the middle, and also the theological center of the passage, highlighting its importance in the story. This phrase is the inflection point of the entire passage. It signals a switch from what happens in the narrative. It transitions us from one thought or one truth to another. And most importantly, it puts the character of God right out in front by highlighting him as the true actor in the story. Again, who, who is it that we often think of as is the one doing the action in the story? Who's, who's the player? We often think it's Noah, right? Well, and he is an important player, but he's not the player in the story. He is not the one acting. God is. And his character is highlighted for us. And so we're going to spend time this morning looking at what comes prior to the but God in the passage. We'll spend time then looking at what comes after and what it means for God to remember. And we'll highlight our intended response to this. So look again with me at the beginning of chapter 6. And we see the setting for what's happening. What's the picture we see here? Well, it's a complete descent of humanity into unbridled and unrestrained sin. And the effects that that has. Verse verse 5 of chapter 6 highlights the depth of the evil that is going on here. The wickedness of man was great on the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty damning statement, I would say. The heart of man is only evil continually. I think it's good for us to sit here a bit and ponder on the nature and corruption of sin. Sin does truly corrupt us. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago in the story that Adam and Eve were sitting in paradise in perfect communion with God. And in only a few short chapters, look how far we've come. Look at at chapter 4, verse 23, where we have a guy bragging about how many people he's killed. Cain has killed his seven. I've killed my 70. And whatever is happening at the beginning of chapter 6, where the sons of God are finding the daughters of men attractive and bearing the mighty men of old, while the Nephilim are roaming around on the earth, whatever all that is, highlights the perversion of sex that is taking place. If you want to get my thoughts on that, what's actually going there, come talk to me afterwards, because I think it's pretty fascinating. But weird perversion isn't the point. Sin is. Mankind has been completely corrupted by sin, to the point where every intention of his heart was evil. As bad as we think our society can be at times, perhaps, we're nowhere near that place. Imagine people freely running around, bragging about how many people they've killed. That just might be a pretty scary place to live, indeed. And what is the effect of that corruption that we see? Well, look again at verse 6 in chapter 6. God regretted that he had made man and was grieved to the heart. That is, the sin of humanity is an affront to the perfect character 
the perfect righteousness of God. So much so that he chooses to wipe out the entirety of humanity, except for one man and his family. And it's not only humanity that he wipes out. I hope you caught that. It's every living creature from the face of the earth. Let's sit on that for a moment, too. God is so offended by sin that he destroys everything. God is that righteous. God is that holy. And our sin is that bad. We can't sugarcoat this like we are so often prone to do. Everything in in us wants to make sin seem not just not that bad. I mean, come on, it's just one little sin, right? But we need to wrestle with the nature of sin. That it corrupts. It rolls downhill. It gets bigger and bigger. Until the only possible solution is to just be swept away. And we need to wrestle with the fact that even just the smallest sin in our minds is is egregious. It's an offense to the loving and all-perfect nature and character of God. If we don't really understand that, well, then the the rest of what comes next isn't going to make any sense at all. And in fact, the rest of Scripture doesn't make any sense at all if we don't understand how offensive sin is to God. We end up thinking that God is the bad guy. God is the one who looks terrible here. Well, that's not the case at all, is it? God is not the bad guy in this story. We are. God is the good guy, the one righteously acting. But we have to understand the righteous judgment of God. We must understand that it's a Perfect, a necessary and just judgment of sin. A necessary and perfect action by God, born out of his perfect nature. Now the rest of chapters 6 and 7 give us the details of that righteous judgment. The details are important. And so first I want to draw our attention to the phrase, breath of life. Perhaps you heard it several times as Lacey was reading it. Specifically, we see that everything which had the breath of life died. We see it in chapter 6, verse 17. We see it in chapter 7, verses verses 15 and 22. Everything that had the breath of life died in the flood. Why is that important? Well, I think Moses, what he's telling us by writing this, is that this is sort of an uncreation event. We see in the first two chapters of Genesis that God gives the breath of life to his creation. And now, just a few short chapters later, God is taking that breath of life away. The global flood is meant to be seen as an uncreation event. That's powerful. The sin of humanity causes God to almost almost undo everything that he had just done. It again highlights that God is the righteous judge of the entirety of creation. It also highlights the fact that the entirety of creation is tied to humanity. Our sin and our eventual redemption, as Paul makes clear in Romans. Sin hasn't just affected humanity, but has corrupted creation itself. And thus requiring judgment of all creation. By God. 
God judges sin in all its entirety in offense. We can't sugarcoat it. Interestingly, as some of the guys from our church met last week to discuss this passage, Phil Grove brought up a fantastic point that I think is worth mentioning. He brought up the fact that uh, the, true fi- the true picture of what happens here is set in contrast to the way we often think about it. I mean, think of the murals that get painted on your kids' walls in the nursery. We, when we think of the flood, we have this picture in our minds of a little wooden boat gliding happily along the top of the ocean, you know, perhaps smiling little animals sticking their heads out the windows. Happy people, right? That's the way we often think of it. But that's not at all the scene, is it? We see violence. The very crust of the earth is ripped open, unleashing the fury of the hidden water to the earth. The heavens are unleashed and all their fury upon the earth. Every person on the surface of the earth, except for Noah and his family, are drowned, gasping for air as water fills their lungs. I imagine when the ground started filling, they would have come knocking on the door of the ark, only to hear deafening silence in return, slowly realizing that there is no salvation for them, but only death and judgment for their abandonment of God. It's not really all that great of a nursery school story, is it? It's death and judgment. How do you think of the story? What picture do you see in your mind? I think it would be safe to say that it's nothing compared to the horror of the actual event. Creation is dead. And the only survivors are in a wooden boat being tossed around in a hurricane on top of the water. All hope seems lost, doesn't it? And I want to say one more thing about this righteous judgment of God. To the believers here today, this story must affect our evangelism, our spreading of the gospel, our desire to tell others about Christ. And it must change the content of what we share. You see, so often in our witness, we choose to highlight the love and the grace of God. I mean, it's our favorite part of him, right? And so we should tell others so it can be their favorite part of him too. They, they too should know the love and grace of God. And, and we've already said that the, the human heart doesn't like talking about sin, so we just leave that part out. We leave out that God is a judge. Because that just doesn't sound all that loving, does it? Well, we make the gospel palatable to human ear in hopes that they just might choose God to love them too. But listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. He says this, And he, that is Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Or listen to what Paul says to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, verses 29 through 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do the apostles of Christ give testimony to the gospel? Well, Peter says that Christ commanded them to preach that he is judge of all the earth. And that he has appointed a day when he will judge everyone. So when you give the gospel message, what exactly do you give them? Repentance and faith is impossible without understanding why you need them. That you sit under condemnation with no way out. And if you are an unbeliever here this morning, you must wrestle with the righteous judgment of God. You must understand that your sin, your rejection of Him and His truth is an affront to His perfection. And He will judge it. Perhaps not now, but He will judge it. Listen again to what Jesus says in Matthew 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just like the flood was a surprise to the people in Noah's day, so will the future and final judgment of God be. While the world goes about in revelry, partying it up, God will come in judgment, and he will destroy it again, but with fire instead of water. If you do not understand that God is your judge, this account in Genesis should be a sobering call to you that you sit under the judgment of God. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It will happen. God will judge. And you had better think through whether or not that will work out well for you. And so at the end of chapter 7, we are left in a destitute destitute situation for sure. A small cohort on a boat with a bunch of stinky animals for 150 days. Hopeless, it might seem. And then comes that great pivot point. But God remembered in chapters, if chapters 6 and 7 detail for us the drama of the judgment of God, well, chapter 8 details for us the dramatic salvation of those on the ark brought about by God. We see Noah patiently waiting for the promised deliverance. No small feat, I'm sure. But we need to understand, again, that the focus here is on God, not necessarily Noah. God is the one acting. God is the one saving. If Noah opens that door, apart from God's instructions, he's dead. God must be the one to act. And he does. Now, I want to say a brief word about the fact that it speaks of God remembering. This is not some erroneous indication that God had forgotten about the ark and didn't know where they were. He hadn't lost sight of them on the vast ocean. That's a foolish sentiment and doesn't fit at all with the rest of Scripture. Rather, this phrase, I think, highlights for us the special grace that God bestows on his people. It indicates a special love and grace that God has for his children, his chosen ones. Noah and those chosen to be delivered from the judgment 
are at the forefront of the thoughts of God. For example, think of the story of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. He turns to Jesus and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And Jesus replies, Today you will be with me in paradise. The thief is asking Christ to keep him at the forefront of his thoughts as he enters his kingdom. That is exactly the sentiment that we see in Genesis 8. God remembering highlights and speaks to the special sovereign grace that God has on his people in his salvation and deliverance. Well, another way this text highlights for us the special grace of God is that in it we begin to see a theme that is carried through the rest of Scripture. That God will always redeem a people for himself. Even in the midst of a wicked generation. When the whole of humanity was against God, he still set apart for himself one man and his family. And we could go on and on down the list of Abraham and his family, of David, of Job, of the prophets, and so on we go. God always bestows his special grace on some people calling them to himself and bringing them to salvation. This is who God is, and in that we rejoice. Even in the darkest hour of society, God still calls out a people for himself. How encouraging is that? The light of the gospel of Christ never goes out. It's never extinguished. For Noah, it was only eight people and some animals in contrast to the whole earth. But he called them and he saved them by his special grace. And there's one other aspect of special grace of God that I want to highlight in this passage. We also see God's grace in that the chosen ones on the ark are set out to fulfill the first great commission. To fill the earth and subdue it. Look again with me at chapter 8 verses 15 through 17. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your wife, and their sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. What does this remind you of? Well, it's almost an exact echo of God's very first command to humanity to Adam and Eve, that they should multiply and fill the earth, subduing and ruling over creation under the auspices of God's ultimate rule and care. They failed miserably. But God is gracious to his people in that in redemption, he has tasked his children with once again spreading the glory of God. Remember I said that the flood is to be seen as an uncreation event? Well, the travelers coming off the ark are seen in parallel to creation itself. And the command given to Noah and his family is the same as the one given to Adam and Eve. The redeemed people of the ark are now the ones to accomplish what didn't happen before. Fill creation with the glory of the creator. God graciously gives his people the opportunity to fill the earth with his glory. And this is the same with us. We are tasked with this in the second 
Great Commission in the Gospels. To go into all the world and preach the Gospel. It is His special grace on His people that He tasks us and enables us to fill the earth. Not with flesh this time, but with His glory by the making of His disciples. He graciously allows us to be part of His sovereign plan of filling the earth with His glory. Do we embrace that call? Importantly, however, we don't just see God's special grace on his people in this Genesis account. We also see God's common grace to all of humanity. First, we see God's common grace in the continuation of the natural cycle. He says in chapter 8, verse 22, that as long as the earth remains, that natural order will carry forth continually. Christ himself echoes this in Matthew chapter 5 when he says that God makes it to rain on the just and the unjust alike. God's provision in nature are acts of his grace to all of humanity. We must be aware of this grace in this. Though corrupted, creation still reveals God. And one of the ways it does this is by showing his grace in nature to all of humanity. Coincidentally, this is why I love being a scientist. I get to study the grace that he's given to all humanity in your immune system, which protects you from those bad things that try to harm you. That's an act of God's grace to us. That's why I love studying it. Well, we also see God's act of common grace in the active restraining of sin through the establishment of law and government. We see God's common grace and the active restraining of sin through the establishment of law and government. No longer will man be able to run around in unbridled sin and murderous intention of the heart. Look what, look what God says in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. He says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. It's a a small section, only two verses, but it's an important one. Now, no longer is everyone responsible only to God, though that is certainly the most important by far. We're also now responsible To one another. If you shed blood, your own blood is required as a reckoning. God is abundantly clear on that. Justice must be carried out. The New Testament writers pick up on this theme as well. Both Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Paul in Romans 13. They spend time focusing on this theme. That God himself establishes governments and rulers. They say the task of civil government and law is to wield the sword, to carry out justice and uphold law. Peter and Paul thus then say that our responsibility is to submit to them, to pray pray for them, to desire that it goes well for them, that it thus may go well for us. In fact, they say that our submission and attitude towards civil leaders is a direct reflection of our attitude and submission 
to Christ. A sobering thought, perhaps, for many of us. I don't want to spend too much time here, as we could have whole sermons about it. But I will say just a few words. I don't want to say that, say at all that we cannot disagree with our civil leaders. Or even seek change, if necessary. And there are times, if they instruct us to disobey the call of the gospel itself, where we must not submit. But we've all got to watch our attitudes and the words which come forth from us. I've seen it from both sides of the political aisle. This idea that those in government aren't deserving of our respect, so we don't give it to them. I heard cries of, not my president, or whatever else, to express the sentiment that we don't recognize the president as the leader of our country. And I'm not getting political here because I've seen it from both sides of the political aisle. But we as Christians cannot fall into this thinking. We must give honor and respect, not inherently because of who they are as people, but because of the God-ordained position that they hold. We can disagree with them, but we must show respect and submission because this is a reflection of our submission to Christ and His change in our hearts. To, To disagree with someone, yet still show them honor, is so amazingly countercultural today that if you and I carry out ourselves in this manner, Christ will truly be brought glory because of the change he has brought about in our hearts and minds. Now, the final act of common grace to all humanity we see in chapter 9, verse 15. That God will not again destroy the entire earth by water. He establishes a covenant which he says is for all flesh, in verse 12. Even if sin and evil still go on, he will show patience and forbearance, and not again cleaning out the whole of humanity and starting over again. This is common grace. Listen to what Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-10. through 10. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." God patiently waits, allowing His people to carry out His great commission, desiring that all people come to repentance. But the final judgment will come like a thief in the night, but with fire instead. But in the meantime, we see the rainbow and are reminded that He is patiently waiting, showing common grace to all flesh and not instantly carrying out judgment, another global judgment. And so we've seen the righteous judgment of God and the gracious salvation of God. But there's one more aspect of the story I want to draw our collective attention to this morning. And to me, it's the most shocking part of the story. I know there's something more shocking about the entirety of humanity being wiped out. And it's this. The flood, it changes exactly nothing. That's right. The flood doesn't actually change anything at all, especially in the thoughts and hearts 
of humanity. Here's what I mean. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's before the flood, and the reason for the flood. But now look with me at chapter 8, verse 21. It says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. That one's after the flood. Before the flood, every intention of man is evil. After the flood, every intention of man is evil. Not even the death of nearly every human alive changes that. God himself acknowledges that not even global judgment can change the heart of humanity. And interestingly, we see this to be a very true statement, don't we? What are the very next two events that happen after they come off the ark? First, Noah, that righteous man who was just delivered, gets drunk. And humanity as a whole, well, they immediately disobey by not spreading out over the earth as commanded, but they choose to stay huddled together at Babel. This is a consistent scriptural theme. Even God's righteous choosing does not negate sin itself. And knowing and experiencing the judgment of God does not change the human heart. And a side note, I think this actually has implications for how we think of hell. God's final judgment. It's our tendency to want to feel bad or pity for anyone who will one day be cast there. And that's a good and right feeling, which should drive our obedience and evangelism. But we need to understand that those in hell will still continuously turn their backs on God. We might think that after judgment they may repent, but just be stuck there with God wagging his divine finger, saying, no, no, you had your chance. But that's not at all the case. A judged humanity will still continuously turn their back on God and reject his mercy. Sinners in hell will not want to repent. Loved ones, do you know what a true believer looks like? It's the one who is softened by the righteous discipline of God, as we saw in Hebrews And not hardened by it. There will be no one in hell for eternity who was not there by their own choosing. And who was not continually rejecting the mercy of God for all eternity. We must do away with this notion that hell will be full of repentant sinners that are just out of chances. No, hell will be full of those who even throughout the entirety of eternity reject God. The judgment of God will only serve to harden their hearts, as it always does, even more, and confirm them in their rejection. But again, we must understand that not even global judgment and God's righteous choosing will change the human heart on this earth. Noah sinned. Abraham sinned. David sinned. The nation of Israel, chosen by God, sinned. A heart change is always needed. 
And that is a work begun at conversion and only completed in glory. But this is our tendency, isn't it? To, to think that something, some event, some societal change can solve the human condition. We place our hope, perhaps, in a political system that it would bring about the necessary change in society. But it can't, as evidenced by the consistent flip-flopping of pol- which political party is in control of our country. We think the grass is always greener over there, but it never is. Or perhaps personally, we think that changing our situation will solve our sin problem. Perhaps for those of you that are single, we think that if we get married, we won't struggle with lustful thoughts anymore. But ask any married man here, and you'll see that that's that's just not true. Though it can help us, as Paul says. We can take steps to mitigate sin's effects, but the only true solution to sin, both personally and corporately, is by the redemption brought about by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is only by being united to his death and resurrection that we die to ourselves, our sin, and are raised again unto new life, where sin no longer has a hold. We can't look anywhere else for a solution to the sin problem but to Christ. Peter makes this point clear. In 1 Peter chapter 3. As Noah was figuratively brought from death, sitting helplessly in the ark while everything was being destroyed, to life, being brought off the ark, so was the believer brought from death to life in Christ, as we are rescued from his judgment. 